Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. Here you will find Dr. Cindy Elliser and Kat McKeever, researchers at Pacific Mammal Research, talking all about marine mammals. We will have a variety of ways to share information with you through discussing research articles and news stories, interviews with other researchers, and more. Join us to learn more about marine mammals and have some fun. Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And this week is a general review, and this week, or this uh, episode, um, is, uh, is a really cool one, and we're going to link it to some stuff that we're uh, trying to do with our uh, some of our photographs here. Um, but this is uh, an t- article entitled, Sexually Dimorphic Characteristics of Short-Finned Pilot Whales, False Killer Whales, Pigmy Killer Whales, and Melon-Headed Whales, that's a lot of whales, assessed using fin and body morphometrics from photographs taken at sea. And this is by Shelby Yon et al. And we actually know Shelby. And you actually know Shelby a little bit more than I do. Yeah, I went to school with Shelby. Right. So <laughs> always ex- always exciting to be able to talk about a fellow scientist's research. <laughs> and we were excited about uh, seeing this because we we saw her poster a few years ago at uh, one of the Marine Mammal Conferences about this. Um, so it's really, you know, really cool to then see it now up in print and um, the work that came from that. So, yeah. I'm very excited to to get to dig into it. So uh, I think we should start off with a couple of definitions. Yes, let's do that. So sexually dimorphic, di meaning two and morph meaning, you know, shape of things. So when we say something sexually dimorphic, it's the fact that the males and females look different than one another. Mm-hmm. And generally, when we say sexually dimorphic, we're saying the males look distinctly different. Um for the most part, because I've heard the term re- reverse sexual dimorphism um, when they say it's the females that have more of the, the characteristics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And I was like, well, I think sexually dimorphic should just be that they're just different. But I yeah. think <laughs> so often that the males are the ones that are that much different that it's, that it's you know, it's inferred that way. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cool so uh but either way whatever you want to take it it means that the the males and females you can look at them and go oh that's a male or that's a female and there's mm-hmm. a range of how distinct they are different versus not like some are um different but you'd have to you know do minute measurements to do so you know you wouldn't just be able to look at them and there's others that are like oh that's a male like the um, killer whales you know the males have giant six foot tall dorsal fins <laughs> that's a bit more obvious Right. And I think, I mean, a good example of one that is sexually dimorphic technically, but you'd have to really look for the difference would be a harbor porpoise because right. they are slightly sexually, sexually dimorphic, but we're talking centimeters difference in length. <laughs> um, I'm sure the so range again, overlaps like, too. Right. So yeah. it's one where like technically there is, but you'd, you'd have to literally sit down and measure the animals to know that that difference was apparent. You can't just tell by looking at them. Exactly. And so we'll be talking, there, there's a range with these guys too, the, the ones that they looked at, um, but these these are more subtle than just looking at them and being able to immediately see that that's a male or a female. Um, so it's it's uh, interesting to be able to look at some more minute measurements that you can take from photographs instead of the actual animals to be able to, 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 be able to sex the individuals, basically. That's what they're mm-hmm. looking at. Being able to say like, oh, we measured these things on the dorsal fin. We can predict that this is a male or this is a female. Um, and so the, um, the other thing is, uh, you know, um, fin and body morphometrics. 
So that's basically just looking at the size and shape of the individual. And so in this case, they're looking at dorsal fin measurements and body measurements in relation to one another uh, and looking at those proportions and seeing if those proportions are uh, within a certain category for males versus females, or that there's a difference. Right. Good uh, definitions. Yes, yeah, so I think I think those were the, the main definitions I, I wanted to make sure that we had we covered before we start, since we're a little bit words that we don't use that often in normal everyday speech. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the, you know, okay. So they're, they're looking at the, the study is looking at trying to measure different things on the animal to be able to see if we can predict the sex of the individual. So why is that important in the first place? Well, as we, as we, as we've probably talked about before with Harvard purposes, we don't know the sex of the, of the individuals generally, like you, cause you can't just look at them and say, that's a male, that's a female. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for a lot of different analyses and population metrics and structure to know, like, is those two animals, two males, or is that a male and a female, or is that two females, or is that, you know, um, who is relating to who and how often they're together has a large implications for mating strategies and social structure and population structure and behavior. So it's a real, it's a real boon to be able to know the sex of the individuals that you're looking at. And um, most, I would hazard to say most cetacean populations, it, that's not easy. Um, in the Bahamas, the work that I did there, it was great because we were in the water with them, um, you know, with a, with a permit, of course, but we were in the water and they were really curious and they're like, hey, and then they showed us their belly and we can go, well, you're a male, you're a female. <laughs> it's pretty mm -hmm. straightforward. But most other places are done, research is done with the animals at the surface. So they come to the surface, but they, you don't see their bellies. You don't see any part of them. Um, and so we'll talk a bit as we go through what the caveats are for describing um, using those kind of uh, markers, like if there's a calf present, is it a female? Um, and um, for males, there's other body parts that could be helpful in determining whether it's male or female. But um, we basically, for females, if you if you see a calf, then it's likely a female, right? Um, males is a little bit different that we'll talk about, but it's 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 hard to know what the sex of an individual is so if we could find it from being able to measure these photographs you'd have a, a whole nother layer of information that you could then use to ask questions on the population right and i just want to say too you know it's obviously as scientists we get very excited about things like um social structure and you know behavioral differences and how the different sexes are interacting with one another but also like on a general conservation level understanding how many males versus females versus yeah. mature animals versus immature animals are in a population has huge implications for their conservation and management. So I just want to put that out there as like a more of like a high level view of why this is important is like understanding that about a population gives you a very different and much more accurate ability to actually identify the trajectory of that population potentially um, right. and potentially how well it's doing. If, like, for example, the critically endangered vaquita, if we knew that the 10 individuals that are left are all females, well, then we'd pretty much know the fate of that population. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and on a larger scale, if you know that 75% were females or 75% males, only 25% were males, uh, were females, that's also a problem because you need more females than males to keep the population going. 
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we do talk about with the Southern resident killer whales as well. Like what are the proportion of females versus males in this population? Like how does that, how is that going to affect the likely outcome of their population status? So just to put that out there as kind of a more broad, you know, broad sweeping viewpoint of why this is important too. Right. The basic part of the population that is really important to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time, most, most, most things are invasive and in, in finding out the sex, unless you can be in the water with the animals, which again, most places you can't. Um, and so it's, you know, you get invasive skin biopsies, necropsies, which is obviously very invasive, dead animals. Um, so it's great to have a, a way to do this possibly, uh, depending on the species that doesn't, is non-invasive. Uh, you don't have to handle the animal at all. Uh, and you can get the information from the field. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing too is this the one thing that's really cool about this method is that it doesn't require the animals to be engaging in any specific activity to necessarily right. get the pictures. All you're doing is as long as they're surfacing, which they have to breathe, so they're going <laughs> to surface, um, that you can potentially get the information that you need versus like, oh, we're looking for this particular behavior to know that that's a male versus a female. So it's also, it's a little bit easier to to come across in that respect as well. Yeah, exactly. So, if, you know, if you need to see the belly of the animal, you need them to come out of the water. If you're doing it from the surface, well, you're only going to get very few photographs of that versus how many thousands of photographs you can take when they surface. Just normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a, a wide range of, um, in in mammals in general and animals in general um, and particular stations of what is some species that have very strong sexual dimorphism and other ones that are, there's nothing. Um, and so there's, it's, it's trying to find those items that might be, even for those that don't look vastly different, like these animals, right? Um, is there something in there that is different enough that if we could measure it, we could actually use it? Mm-hmm. So um, why, okay, so the, one of the other questions is why, did the, why is there sexual dimorphism in the first place? <laughs> Who cares? Good question. <laughs> right. Um, so the thoughts on on why, first of all, is that it serves as a visual signal, potential mates or competitors, right? So if you have a big giant dorsal fin, either to girls, you're like, ooh, that looks like that means he's got good nutrition, so he's gonna be, you know, a good genetic donor for for the babies. Uh, or males, I'm so big, don't mess with me, so I'm gonna have control of the females that I, I'm in charge of or you know, trying to to get with. Right. Um, classic example of that would be of the visual signal one is like the peacock right that everybody knows yeah hey does a peacock get hello i'm so amazing mm-hmm. um and then and like with elephant seals for example like the larger you are uh, and the big you know the louder you are the more impressive you are the less likely other animals are, uh, other males are going to come and try to fight you for it true um the other one is providing greater maneuverability for corralling females uh and competition so in in the water world that would make a difference that if you can be speedier or quicker or you know just better in movement then you might be able to uh be be a better competitor Mm -hmm. um and so because of this so whether animals have this strong sexual dimorphism in these in these um obvious traits for either competing with other males or being the peacock and, and um, displaying, they can serve as indicators of the social structure and the mating system. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. But that's another important thing we can understand without knowing if it's, you know, sperm competition versus um, um, competing for male for females via fighting with other males or harassing and corralling females. 
um, with lack, the lack of evidence, you could possibly use the, these traits as indicators of which one of those they do. Um, so mm -hmm. if there's, you know, a large dorsal fin or large larger animals, then it's probably that there's competition going on there versus um, versus the opposite. Right. Um, so uh, I thought this was interesting. Poor environmental conditions can also have an, uh, a, an influence on the presence and extent of dimorphism with less exaggerated male features seen in low productivity areas. I know. So I, I thought that was fascinating where they're basically, you know, they're big referencing a few studies in the text here um, that are basically epigenetic studies where they're looking at like things from previous um, lineage, like lineage of that species in that specific area and how that actually influences the traits that, that are seen in the current population, which I thought was fascinating. And I want to go read those studies. I know. Right. And so it makes sense though. Like if there's not a lot of nutrients, you can't put extra, extra nutrients into being a peacock. Right. Yeah. And I think that brings up, it brings up a really good point. Right. Yeah. Of like that is, you know, that is the one thing to consider with, again, like using the example of the elephant steel, the males are massive compared to females. If you've never seen pictures and that's an awful lot more energy that has to go into creating that body type. Right. And, and that has to then be sustained if you're going to be competitive in the environment. So it does really bring up that point that this is a costly process to have sexual dimorphism, especially if you're really extreme in the sexual dimorphism that you're engaging in. Exactly. So it's, it, it, it's interesting that it connects so much with ecology and, I know, and I think so cool. there's so much like behavior and, morpho and morphology all relates to the ecology of the animals. And it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, the other cool thing that could happen is that, you know, as the animals grow, so for example, male orcas are not born with six foot tall dorsal fins, right? they have actually a bit more uh, curved when they're younger and it kind of gets straighter as they get older and there's lots of um, other examples of that as the things the, the traits grow or are different as the animal ages so you could have um when you have these sexually dimorphic um characteristics the emergence of these could be used to de detect determine the onset of maturity so you could possibly yeah. use these and say oh once it gets to this point of curve or size or whatever um, that means that they're actually sexually mature at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's again, like the classic example, be thinking of people, right? Like the sexual dimorphism amongst people really becomes more pronounced once you hit puberty and beyond. Right. Um, so yeah, it's very, very interesting. <laughs> Cetacean puberty, other fins. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, this study in particular, uh, used, uh, looked at relative fin and body proportions from photographs taken at sea to quantify the sexual dimorphism in those four species um, and determine whether the morphometrics taken from photos can be used to determine the sex of adult individuals. And so as we go into the materials and methods here, the important thing to remember is this is, these are all ratios of, you know, the length of the fin, the height of the fin, where the overhang comes at the back of the fin, where it starts behind the, how long it is from the blowhole to the front of the dorsal fin and how they relate to one another. And so what this allows you to be able to do is use photographs um, that don't have a scale. So most of the time, if you're using measurements, you're going to have to have some kind of scale knowing that the photograph from this animal and the photograph from this animal have the same relative scale. Um, and that's really hard to do. Like we don't, especially with smaller species, you know, lots of times you can use, you can have a red dot, you know, and it shows like, okay, the red dot here and there, there's like a laser beam basically. And it mm -hmm. can tell you, what that exact distance is, so then you can figure out what the what the relation is. 
Um, but that's really hard to do for a lot of different species. And so the ability to be able to take a photograph and then just use the proportions within that photograph means you can compare those proportions with whatever proportions you have in the different photograph without a scale because you're just looking at the proportions within each and, and comparing those. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it basically widens your data set massively um, with the pictures that you're actually able to use. Um, and we are, we are, don't, don't worry, we're going to skim over a lot of the um, intricacies of the ratio parts and all yes. the explanations of that. We'll, we'll, we'll summarize for you. Don't, don't worry if you're like me and math phobic, um, don't, like, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really cool with them. Like the, I mean, there's so many ratios yeah. that they use in, in here, which is just fascinating, but it, it gets confusing even to just, you know, when you first look at it, you're like, that's eh, a lot of letters and dividing and okay. Yeah. Um, so we're going to, we're going to pull the, the, the salient points out for you. So um, we're great. They had 17 years worth of data. So this is uh, a lot of information that's collected in Hawaii from Cascadia Research Collective that have been doing that research for, for years and years and years. So they have a long-term data set. So they have a lot of uh, information on the life history of those, of those individuals. Um, I thought this was great. Another important point of it's not just researchers that contribute important data. Um, it was, mm -hmm. there was, um, so between 2003 and 2019, over 70% were were photographed by the research boats. Um, with the remaining ones, this uh, by citizen scientists, almost 18%, and other researchers, almost 12%. So, you know, close to 20% of their, uh, you know, a fifth of their data set came from citizen scientists. Yeah, I love that. And that's, again, that's the power of being able to use this broader data set where it's, it's just photographs of a fin, right? As long as they meet the criteria to be a usable picture, um, yeah. they can be included, which is awesome. Exactly. And it helps researchers out, right? That's 20% more data. 100%. Than previously. Yeah. So um, they had 328 sixth, sixth, wow, mm, 328 <laughs> sex in adult individuals. Um, and the sex were just described through uh, three methods. The first one was genetic, and this is the most confirmed one, right? They have, they do do biopsy darting with, the, with uh, many of these species down there. So they have that information from a lot of individuals. Um, and uh, uh, so that was 52% were genetically confirmed sexes. Uh, in the non-genetically sex, their females, um, they had to be seen with at least two encounters of a, with a calf or neonate in calf position. So you can't just see it once because it, it could possibly be babysitter. Um, so they try to be a bit more conservative in that you had to at least see them twice with a calf, which is a little bit more indicating that it's most likely the mother of the calf. Um, so that was 43%. And then the males are the hardest because again, sort of referencing before with males versus females, the calf is the biggest thing, right? If you see an animal with a calf a lot, it's, it's most likely a female, if not the mother of the calf, but males don't have that nice little indicator <laughs> at all. <laughs> so it's basically like you have to see their genital region or get genetic samples. Like there's not much else. We have a harbor porpoise that we've seen for the last five years without a calf and because of their life history of how quickly they start reproducing, it's very likely that he's a male because he hasn't been seen with a calf and by now he should have had one. Or they, that one should have. Um, so there's instances where you can do that where you can infer, but it's really, again, not confirming. Um, they right. did have uh, males, um, there's a thing called a post-anal keel, which is basically like a hump kind of in the back of behind their on the peduncle on their belly section, right? Um, mm -hmm. Kind of below um, that is enlarged basically. Um, and there are quite a few males that have that and um, 
uh, certain species, but not all of them do. So, it, and it's, and even within species, we would see that in spotted dolphins sometimes. It seems like they would like have this little pump and then, but not all of them did. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so this method was only used for the pygmy killer whales uh, to increase the sample size of, of how many sex males they had because they had very few with the biopsy darting. And they had just mm -hmm. little information on pygmy killer whales anyway because there's just not that much information on them, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, but the, the, so the males, basically almost all of them were genetically confirmed versus the females. Yeah. Um, they had age classification um, that was done through uh, recurring calf presence for females throughout their sighting histories. We know that relatively when when they have start having their first calf, so if they have one, they have to be at least that old. Um, and then uh, the duration of sighting history exceeding 10 years. And I, I thought this was um, interesting because the basically they looked at the age range of of um, when they become sexually mature um, and that so they use the 10 10 year mark because it means that if they've had sighting histories for 10 years it means that they were um, that's most likely means that they were an adult for for, mo for most of those individuals uh, because the, the age range is like 7 to 17 years 8 to 11 um, 11 and a half years so that 10 year mark really makes it that most of those animals are probably older than that because they're already, you know, a few years old, at least uh, having seen them. So it was a good marker to have to make sure that at least most of the individuals are actually mature. Yeah. And then the other, the other um, thing that they used was adult body size matching physically mature adult con specifics as well. So they're literally looking at the size of the animal and, you know, obviously again, like, is it tiny? Okay. We're probably, that's we're going to discard that. That's probably not sexually mature. So also just looking at the physical body size of the animal, does that match with what a mature adult animal would roughly be in the size range of. Right. And they only wanted mature animals because we talked about before the growth of the animal, that those measurements may be changing during that adolescent period and would con confound the results. So yeah, just wanted to start with that. Um, so basically the photographs, this is stuff we're going to start, uh, just kind of skimming over more. They took JPEG images <clears throat> with minimal deviation. So the one thing is when you're measuring, uh, you're measuring something from left to right, if it's angled away or towards you, those measurements are not going to be correct. Um, and the farther they're away deviating from the camera, the larger your bias is going to be or your error. So they had to only, they could only... Um, be deviated from the horizontal plane of the camera by like 10 degrees. Everything else mm -hmm. was excluded. Yeah. Um, and uh, this one they used, um, <clears throat> uh, it was only one researcher that measured. And that's interesting because a lot of times you have more than one researcher, you know, double checking things. But in mm -hmm. this case, to keep it consistent, one person was measuring so that, the, you know, the, the point where they say is the beginning of the fin is the same every time. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well, but it, it, it makes sense in this context. I think it would be really interesting to do it with two independent researchers doing the, the whole process independently yeah, and then comparing their results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would be like the next step, right? Like this is the first one. Saying, right, yeah, right. Really work within one person and then how, how applicable is this to a wider mm -hmm. thing? Yeah. yeah, to be able to be replicated by somebody else and get the same results. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and then they used uh, pixels as measurement because again, this is why you don't have to have a scale. So you don't wanna measure centimeters because it's not gonna be the same depending on where the animal is in relation to the camera, which is gonna be different every single time. Um, so they used pixels um, uh, to be able to um, do the, the measurements and the ratios. Um, which is super had, cool. Yeah. I, like that's what I think. That's what that's when I was like, oh. it kind of blew my mind. Honestly, the yeah. first time we we heard heard that when we were talking to Shelby, it was like, wait, what? <laughs> you can yeah. do that? <laughs> that's so cool. And yeah, so they're using this um, uh, program called Image J that allows you to do all these measurements and measure it in pixels and and just like you know, it's mind blowing because it opens up a whole new thing to be able to to measure and to look at um, be, without mm -hmm. having to have those extra caveats. Um, they did check on multiple photos within the same encounter, which I think is really important. So if they have an individual and they took like four or five pictures of it, they cheated the measurements each time for that um, to show that, that 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 individual's fin is consistent with the way that person was measuring it. So it mm -hmm. helped to aid in, in that the process was consistent. Yeah. Um, so they did 14 relative ratio terms. Like I said, we're not going to go through uh, most of those or any of those. Um mm -hmm. Um, the next section was basically on stats, and we're just going to go kind of go right over that. Um, they did lots of cool stats, uh, and they used they did use a general. Oh, I'm going to say linear linear model because there's there's two ways to say GOM, but the um, linear models to basically put put in all the ratios that they have, and then they would take one away, and then take one away, and then take one away, and see how that changed the uh, how good the model was predicting using those ratios whether it's males or females based on the ones that they have of known sex. So it's it's a way to get down to the ones that really matter, the ones that really are um, di you know, dimorphic for males and females, what, what ratios are. Right, so you can kind of basically think of a GLM as a sieve where uh, you basically put all, all of the things in mm -hmm. and then you start removing them one by one and seeing how the, the correlations work between each factor and it eventually like Cindy said you get you basically get rid of the noise mm -hmm. and can really start to identify which factors are creating an influence in that particular context yeah that's a great that's a great uh, an, uh, analogy I was about to say analysis not right you're welcome it's <laughs> a great analysis and that was a great analogy <laughs> Um, so that's basically, they basically looked at all these photographs and God, how long it took to go through all those oh measurements gosh. for each individual fin and cause they did a lot of measurements. I'll have to ask her like how many hundreds of hours did you do this for? <laughs> Real. It was like 14, 14, um, ratios, but all those ratios had different measurements and then you had to do all the math. So yeah, it must've taken a long time, but amazing work. Um, so with that, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the results in just a minute. All right, we're back. Um, so now we're getting to the results, the nitty gritty, the cool stuff. Um, so basically there, it worked. <laughs> okay, we're there done. you go. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Mic drop right there. And no, I'm just kidding. Boom. <laughs> don't stop. Don't stop listening yet. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, but basically all four species did show some significant dimorphism in the ratio of the anterior dorsal ridge, which is the measurement that goes from the blowhole to the beginning of the dorsal fin. So how long, and basically where the dorsal fin sits on the top of the back, how close it is to the front. Um, mm -hmm. And for short-finned pilot whales, pygmy killer whales, and melon-headed whales, they showed further dimorphism in the fin. 
Um, so it was only the false killer whales that just had just one thing. <laughs> the only thing. Right. That <laughs> These other guys had some variations, whether that was really significant or not varied between the species, but um, the pilot whales had the most sexually differentiated gym ratio. Yes. Um, so basically where the dorsal fin sits on the back, that was different for everybody, but all the other various ratios that they had um, varied with the different species. Um, so I was going to say, I mean, just basically, so the, the pilot whales had the most sexually differentiated fin ratios. So 10 of the 13 were, were different between the two sexes, which is pretty crazy. Um, pygmy killer whales and melon-headed whales um, both had more minor differentiation with only two out of 13 ratios being different. So right. from almost nothing being different to almost everything being different. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so again, just to, just to remember, like remind everybody when we're talking about these ratios, we're talking about, again, this is between male and female, right? So we're comparing what these ratio scales are between males and females. So if we're talking about having lots of them, that means the males were more significantly different than the females in their appearance, just to clarify again yes so we don't get too bogged down in the ratios right and so it's interesting is that they're and they weren't the same ones right except for except for that right. where the dorsal fin sits on the back like all the other ones were different between the different species of which parts were different than the males and females mm -hmm. which is interesting yeah um and so um this these significant ratios themselves like the ones that were significant can be used independently to indicate sex. So like for the for the false killer whale, like that one is definitely significant and you could use that to put that in the model and see if, you, if it would predict sex. But the other ratios are all, like they're all kind of related to one another. And so you do have to be right. careful with what's called collinearity, where they're not independent from one another. So mm -hmm. the way I thought of this was like in social structure stuff, you don't include calves in the association matrices of who they're associating with because their associations are gonna be highly dependent on their mothers because they're dependent on their mothers mm -hmm. and they're gonna hang out with whoever the mother is. Mm -hmm. So you're not getting a clear indication of what their associations are because it's linked to the mom. Right. And, and so in this case, it's um, those ratios are all, you know, they're, they're, you're using the, some of the same measurements and all the different ratios. And so there are connections between that when the animal grows and how, you know, and just the species of how tall or short the dorsal fins are generally are. Um, so you have to make sure that you go through, um, and basically figure out the ones that are too, there's math, math, math there's math that <laughs> is done <laughs> to be able to figure out how, how linked the, those ones are. And those ones that were yeah. all tightly linked together, they would remove from, um, the models. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, because again, it just it just gets too murky at that point. You don't know which one is actually having an effect because, like you said, you really just can't tease it apart at that point. Exactly. So they then did these final generalized linear models to do and to do basically see can they predict. So they have all the measurements. They put them in this model and they line it up with all those three hundred and twenty eight individual you know that, that that they do have the sexes for, uh, and then match them um, with their dorsal uh, measurements um, and basically did it, it's called um, uh, backwards reduction of independent variables. So like we said before, they, they put them all in there and then they pick one, take one away at a time uh, to filter it down. Like, is it like the sieve or the sieve, depending on how you say it, um, to see what is left that is actually 
mathematically sh significant in predicting it, matching up with predicting the, the sex correctly. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, on there's this, the scale was 50% was entirely random and 100% being perfect prediction. Um, the model, um, correctly predicted 88.2% of pilot whales, right? So that's pretty good. Pretty solid. <laughs> yeah. And that's just on that one measurement, right? Cause that's the only measurement that was, right. um, 46.8% of pygmy killer whales. So that's pretty much random. There's not too much great there. Uh, 61.1, 66.1% of false killer whales. So slightly better than, than random. Um, and 54.9% of melon headed whales. Um, again, just a little bit more than random. So variation and how good the ratios that were left in the model actually correctly identified the sex. Right. And I just want to clarify too that the pilot whales actually the, the false killer whales were the ones that only had one oh sorry thing yeah. that was they were they were the ones that only had one thing different. And um the pilot whales actually I think had the most significant difference um most sexually differentiated fin ratios. So that that might be expected given that they did actually have more differentiation just visual, you know, from their initial process of going through this. Um, so just to just to clarify. Yes, thank you for that correction. Uh, there's, there, it I, gets I, confusing I when we're talking about four different species. I know, <laughs> I really had to keep going back when I was reading it. I'm like, okay, come on guys. I, I did too. I can't remember which one's which. I can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, so again, that yeah, that does make sense. They have 10 out of the 13 that are different. Mm -hmm. That's likely going to be a better predictor than only having one or two. Yeah. Right. And the yeah, the false killer whale is the one that only had one, and that was 66%. Yeah. So I mean a little over half and you know, 50-50 chance of getting it right, basically, right. is what that means. And anything that's getting close to 90% in a model, predictive model is pretty darn good. It's pretty on spot, spot on. Um, so that um yeah, so the pilot whales were the the, the most dimorphic, um, and so moving on to that, so that's the results. That's what we got. Um, so let's talk about exactly what that all means in the context of life in general <laughs> for these cetaceans. Mm -hmm. um, so the short fin, the pilot whales were the most sexually dimorphic fin and body features of all four species. Um, they have a, a, a broader, steeper leading edge of the dorsal fin, a more anterior topmost point, um, and a lower overhang and a shorter anterior dorsal ridge. So the dorsal fin is closer up to the front. Uh, it's a steeper climb up to the top. Uh, what I've thought about that was like somebody just went and like squished them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the dorsal fin just got a little closer. And so then that also squishes the thing up and higher. Um, but that was just what was going through my head when I saw that. <laughs> uh, and so because of that, the pilot whale did have that, um, the highest predictive ability, uh, which again, mm -hmm. like Kat said, makes sense. Um, and so because of that, you could use these pho photographic morphometrics to identify sex for pilot whales, but you could also probably see that in the field. Mm hmm Right, yeah, because it's distinct enough that you could probably look in the field, and if you knew what you were looking for, you could start to pick it out. Right, like once you're mm -hmm. basically really know what you're looking for, you'd be pretty good probably at being able to do that in the field. Obviously, there's going to be some some ones. There's always the outliers that like female has a big dorsal fin, or <laughs> male right? Has a small, yeah, yeah. You know? But in general, but that's the only species that you could do 
all of them, the, 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 the key point to remember here is that all of them, you could use the photographic morphometrics to be able to try and, and, and ID sex with the photographs, but the only one that you could do it in the field is the pilot whales because they were the most different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the false killer whales, um, they had the dimorphism along the anterior dorsal ridge, so that where the dorsal fin is along the back. Um, and uh, the model showed predicting sex using the dorsal ridge and the fin depth. Um, so their traits are, uh, again, you can use the photographs, but um, the, the body proportions indicate that the sex of sexually mature animals can be gotten from photographs or potentially in the field using that relative length of the dorsal fin in relation to the dorsal ridge. So <clears throat> if you're really good in the field and you know, and you can see, you know, if you're good at measuring distances and which I'm not in the field. I'm terrible at it. Don't I ask will. anyone I went to school with, they will tell you. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's not good. <laughs> uh, no, not me neither. <laughs> so the, like, so if you're really good at doing that, you might be able to see like, oh, that's probably a male because of where that dorsal, the dorsal fin is on, on the, on the. Right. On Proportionally the compared to the other animals around it. Right. Yeah. Um, and they found that the, um, the, cause, because, because there's also, it does seem to be from other studies that the, uh, the females are about 10% larger in that ratio, that anterior ridge dorsal fin. So like their size is a little bit different. So you can combine the size and where that dorsal fin is, and you can use that to, to help you tell whether it's a male or female. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive given that that was one that in the model you know was basically mm-hmm. a little just a little over half and half yeah likely to, it, was, to it see had the higher it, of those three that were that but still it wasn't like crazy yeah yeah um the there's evidence for slight but significant sexual dimorphism in the melon-headed whales um males being four percent longer than females um and having larger fin width height than base length but um, they, these were the ones, again, were only slightly better than random. Um, the uh, males were 10% smaller, similar to the false killer whales. Um, and, um, but the, this difference is detectable when analyzing the photographs, but likely very difficult to identify in the eye, except for maybe mm-hmm. experienced observers. So right. not much more than 50% on that one. Um, and then the pygmy killer whales, because we just don't have a lot of information on them. And then, you know, you didn't have as many of the um, sex individuals, the confirmed sex individuals, uh, it, um, they were basically, you can only do it from the photographs. Right. So they, they did have some level of sexual dimorphism, but yeah, basically you couldn't determine that if you just saw them in the field, you would have to take it through this whole process to actually figure that out. Exactly. Yeah. We need more stuff about pigmen killer whales. Um, but the males had a shorter dorsal ridge and larger fin depth and over, at the overhang uh, for the, the points that, that they were measuring there. Um, so we need that, that. Yeah, we need more information, especially more information for males, the confirmed males for those guys, because they really just didn't have that many. Um, and they did look mm-hmm. with the individuals that they they had photographs and know that of two known individuals that were males and they did have a keel. So um, if they could use that information, that could help bump up how many individuals they have to be able to use in an analysis like this, but it still kind of needs to be confirmed that re- really is true across the board that yeah the keel is is from the male yeah so, so let's get into a little bit of why 
Why, why are they, which we already talked about at the beginning a little bit about why dimorphism exists. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, like, like we talked about at the top, you know, this might relate to mating strategy where the larger males are competing with other males um, or able to, you know, basically like get into, you know, keep females to themselves more easily. Um, And if there aren't any sexually dimorphic traits, um, one of the things that they mentioned here is that might indicate basically sperm competition being the strategy of choice. So instead of externally enlarging your body or doing something different externally, you put that energy instead into um, and increasing the quality of your sperm and the ability of that to then successfully um, impregnate an egg. Right. And, so, and that's such an important thing to understand is the mating strategy to be up for conservation, to be able to know how to protect them, to be able for them to be able to have the babies. You have to know how they do yeah. it. Um, right. So having this to be able to help figure that out is really, is really great. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, a lot of this then goes into informing what we, what we might already know in some of the previous research around, you know, showing um, intraspecific competition in some of these species, like the short pilot whales, for example, they have scarring associated with some sort of conflict and aggression within the species themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is playing into that a little bit, um, you know, versus the false killer whales where they mentioned that, you know, they don't have the dorsal fin dimorphism, but they do have the dorsal ridge and overall length dimorphism. And so they're, you know, and they also, they know engage in communal prey sharing. So for example, you know, maybe they're in, utilizing more behavioral displays like successful hunting or even getting acrobatic and showing off um, your fitness level through that method versus, um, you know, a, a huge difference in their visual size or shape. Right. Yeah. And that's interesting. They said the the um, short fin pilot whales have a higher frequency of mandibular fractures in both males and females. Thought yeah, that's rough. Meeting, right. Um, and all four species show evidence of tooth breaks from intraspecific interaction. So you know, fighting amongst themselves, basically, um, indicating that competition and aggression does occur. So um, they all have physical characteristics that some come to competition, except maybe the, the false killer whale, which seems to be maybe a bit more social in nature and in, in mm-hmm. behavioral traits versus physical, physical ones. Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, like, for, for males, if you're against going back to why males, you're, you're bigger, you can compete for females more. You might be able to die for longer, meaning you can get better nutrients and better food that then make you better looking for females. Um, so there are the, those trade-offs of whether you invest in that versus investing in uh, not in physical traits, but in your social social structure and, and behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it comes back to that. Mm-hmm. That crux. Yes. So it's, it's a really important thing to be able to understand better. And this is just another great tool that we have to be able to, to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they kind of finished off with just looking at limitations of the study. Um, you know, uh, the age at sexual maturity is different than physical maturity and lots of times in cetaceans, it's years apart. So they become mm-hmm. sexually mature first or physically mature first, depending on the species. Um, mm-hmm. So being able to understand that better would be very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's true that some of these may be in, be in physically mature, but not sexually mature yet, or vice versa. Right, or vice versa, exactly. These ones, it seemed like it was the opposite, for, but like for bobnose dolphins, there was a study that just came out um, that looked at Sarasota's animals, and like, it's the older males that are, <laughs> that are, that are mating, that are, that are successful. Mm, interesting gotcha um, and, and we had the same thing with spotted dolphins but then there's others that you become sexually mature much much before before you become physically mature 
Mm-hmm. Well, again, think of people, right? You're yeah. technically sexually mm-hmm. mature at a very young age, but you're not physically mature yet at that age. Exactly. So mm-hmm. um, it's important to understand, uh, to be able to understand that and and, uh, and look at those differences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they did group all the pelagic and insular, the ones that are next to the islands together. So, and there may be differences. There are lots of times differences between a coastal versus a pelagic species in morphology. Right. Uh, Bobnose yep. dolphins are different. They yep. Different offshore, <laughs> very different offshore. Like Huge difference, guys. Yeah. Oh Those offshore are massive. And then they look like rugby. They look like rugby players compared yeah. to the inshore dolphins. It's wild. It's like rugby players versus like soccer players. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. Yeah. Um. So there might be some bias there within the study. So they, they do want to look at those differences. Can we look at just these and, and just those and see if there are differences between those two? Mm-hmm. Um. And there could be misidentifications uh, because of alloparental care. So some of the animals, like practice with killer whales, are more likely to be babysitters than others. And maybe there's males that babysit sometimes um so by using the calves as a, as a proxy for fem- being a female there could be some mis- misidentifications there for sex mm-hmm. yeah um but all that being said there you know there's always caveats and, and biases that might occur in study but the study was done done really well and has pr- provided a what's such a wonderful tool that we're hoping to be able to use for our animals um down the line when we get to know sexes but also we're c- trying to see if we can we have different shapes of dorsal fins that we see in harbor porpoises and we want to see if we can quantify that and so this is very exciting that we, we might be able to use this program to be able to do that um, and these studies to help us figure out how we might approach that. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned. So stay tuned. So mm-hmm. um, that is it. Um, that was, again, sexually dimorphic characteristics of short-finned pilot whales, false killer whales, pygmy killer whales, and melon hooded whales assessed using fin and body morphometrics from photographs taken at sea. Take a breath. <laughs> uh, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You can get uh, mini episodes and ad-free um, regular episodes of the podcast. Uh, and visit our merch store on our website to get some cool uh, Pac-Man merch and help us support what we do and, and what we provide for you guys here on the podcast. So with that, we will see you next time. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Check out our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M, to learn more about us, our research, and the educational opportunities that we provide. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.